The late 18th century, Paris, France. It was the basin of a revolution. One revolution beget another. What started as an enlightened concept of liberté, égalité, et fraternité ended in bloodshed that no one expected. It was born of the same ideals that started the American Revolution that so successfully had changed the world. France was our best friend. But as to the motives of what caused Louis XVI to decide to fund a revolution an ocean away when his own people were suffering, well, it wasn't entirely altruism. France and England simply existing near one another has caused so many wars across history. It could be an economic benefit to align with a new world power, but also it was a nice little va-te-faire-foutre to King George III. But as the members of France's third estate starved and grain dried up, the opulence of the royal family understandably angered many. And as an American, there's a conundrum here. Without the money given to America by France, winning the American Revolution would have been exceedingly difficult, incredibly unlikely. And for sowing the ideas of liberty amongst the Americans, as people like the Marquis de Lafayette fought alongside American soldiers, they were blind to the revolution stirring in their own country. Without France, America would likely not exist as we know it today. But that would ultimately be one of the downfalls of Louis XVI. His own hypocrisy would end with his head severed by a guillotine. And history often repeats the same patterns over and over again because the revolutionaries themselves began to fight with one another. It was a bloody mess, ending with the death of the man, Robespierre, who started it all. But France swore to move forward. But it would be one man waiting in the wings and watching. A man who would claim that he found the crown of France in the gutter and picked it back up. And though it's weird to find a parallel in a Batman movie, I can't help but often think of the phrase, you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. France, who thought it was done with absolute rulers, went from a king to an emperor. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. It's been a long time coming. Napoleon Bonaparte, Episode 1. Seventeen sixty-nine, Ajaccio, Corsica. On the fifteenth of August, Napoleon de Bonaparte was born to his father Carlo and his mother Letizia. He was not the eldest son; in fact, he was the fourth child born to the pair and the second surviving after his eldest brother Joseph. Corsica's occupation by the French had been the cause of many skirmishes. The country had its own language, its own government. Initially, Napoleon's father had joined in the resistance alongside Pasquale Paoli, but when Paoli's politics became a problem, Paoli fled, leaving the charge to Carlo. 
And at some point, Carlo accepted the French as their new leaders and never really pushed it, eventually amassing some power by being appointed the assessor for the judicial district of Ajaccio. The Bonapartes weren't massively powerful, but to portray Napoleon as a young man who came from nothing to become emperor is not accurate. Carlo was descended from Tuscan nobility. The family held some power in Corsica and were active in their church and their communities. The family's position helped open doors for both Napoleon and Joseph to obtain a quality education. The governor of Corsica, Count Marbuff, had an infatuation with Napoleon's mother. Knowing this information, Letizia Bonaparte did encourage long walks and friendly conversation, but it really went no further. And Carlo was thrilled to take advantage of the opportunities afforded him by the friendship with the governor of Corsica. Marbeuf wrote letters of recommendation for both Joseph and Napoleon. And eventually, Napoleon would begin to learn to speak French and would eventually take a more French pronunciation of his name, Napoleon Bonaparte. That's not to say that the entire family was amenable to the changes that the French occupation of Corsica presented. Letizia was known for being tough on her children and stubborn, and in what I imagine was a little bit of protest, she never learned to speak French. And colonization has a terrible tendency to make those colonized feel like outliers. Napoleon is the perfect example of this. His father had gotten him a spot at a religious school, but in the same year, Napoleon was accepted to the military academy at Brienne-le-Chateau. He was a small child who spoke French, not very well, and with a noticeable Corsican accent. And of course, children have been the same across history. Napoleon was mercilessly teased by his classmates. He was miserable. When I look back at those early years of Napoleon's life, I always want to crack a joke about how teasing the intelligent, quiet kid in school is how you get people like Napoleon Bonaparte. I am certain some of those kids who teased him ended up freezing to death in Russia at some point and probably had some time to reflect on how they treated Napoleon in school. Leave the quiet kids alone. But Napoleon was tougher than he seemed and showed aptitude in many subjects. He loved math and history, and ironically, he had a soft spot for another emperor, Julius Caesar. It's something you'll see later in his life as he brings back a lot of classic style during his reign, in art and in fashion. His instructors noted that Napoleon also enjoyed the sea and geography and suggested in reports that he might make an excellent sailor. As one instructor noted in his reports later on, Napoleon was the kind of student who could go far under the right circumstances. Napoleon also loved writing stories, fictional stories, romantic stories. He was, by all accounts, something of a Renaissance man. Despite suggestions that he might be an excellent sailor, Napoleon decided to stay on land and was accepted into l'école militaire in Paris in 1784. But in 1785, while away in Paris, Napoleon would lose his father to stomach cancer, plunging the family into dire straits financially. His older brother returned to head the family, which was not an easy task, and Carlo didn't always make smart decisions or investments with his money. In the same year, Napoleon would graduate l'école militaire. He was the first Corsican to do so. And don't let your perceived failures or mediocrity ever concern you because Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the greatest generals in French history, graduated 42nd in his class of 58. Despite his apparent acclamation to French society and culture, Napoleon at the time was still a Corsican nationalist and even reached out to the man who his father had once joined forces with, Pascal Paoli. 
These ideas of enlightenment that were floating around France were also giving Corsicans ideas to kick the French out. As for Napoleon, he did support the Jacobins in their struggle to rise up and overthrow the first and second estates of France. Now, if you need a refresher on the French Revolution, I'd recommend going back and listening to my episodes on the Marquis de Lafayette. Louis XVI had been bankrolling the American Revolution, all while ignoring the plights of the average man in the third estate of France. The hypocrisy was noted. And it would eventually turn into a violent bloodbath with guillotines running day and night to take out the nobles. In Corsica, at this same time, there were struggles for power that were complicated in that you had those who were loyal to the French, nationalists, and revolutionaries. Eventually, Corsica would beg for British protection from the French. But Paoli was a bit disappointed with Napoleon. He knew that Napoleon had at one point idolized him, but knew the Bonapartes had chosen to stay loyal to the French. As such, they fell out of his favor. He thought them traitors. Paoli pulled the strings to have Napoleon taken out of his post with the National Guard and had him detained at one point. Corsica was home, but Paoli and his followers sent Napoleon and his family packing. But it would all work out for Napoleon Bonaparte. Revolutions can weaken governments. Royal families around Europe watched with horror as the French people overthrew their king and queen, and it got everyone worrying about their own nepotism jobs. The weakening of a country also entices the militaries of other countries to come pick apart and plunder the spoils of war. When the government is falling apart, keeping control of a government-run organization can be damn near impossible. Napoleon seemed to have the balancing act of politics down pretty well. He was pro-Republican, even writing a pro-Republican pamphlet called Le Super de Beaucaire. This would gain him some positive attention from the current French government, the Committee for Public Safety. And I... Right now, I'm going to lovingly borrow a joke from John Green, who has a fantastic crash course on the French Revolution, in which he references the Committee for Public Safety and says that their motto was clearly, we suck at protecting public safety. He is not wrong. They sucked. John Green was not wrong on that one. But Napoleon had been playing a fine game of not stepping on any toes. His artillery training at school had garnered him a position in what would be his first major military success. 1793, the Siege of Toulon, one of France's major naval bases. An Anglo-Spanish fleet was occupying Toulon and its forts, taking advantage of the revolution seized France's weakness and the aristocrats who welcomed them in, hoping they could get protection from the reign of terror. And we all know the British love their ships, and they were more than happy to take possession of the equivalent of half of the French Navy's ships. When the commander of the French artillery at Toulon was hurt in battle, Antoine Salisetti, a Corsican, named his fellow countryman Napoleon to the post. Ultimately, Napoleon would earn a promotion to major by September and adjutant general in October. And now, make your popcorn, sit down, and prepare yourself for the battle that will start the very beginning of the absolute hatred between Napoleon and the British. Because the British are about to get outplayed by a Frenchman. A Frenchman who, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, understood the importance of getting the high ground. British General Charles O'Hara arrived with reinforcements and they began tearing down and destroying French-built batteries built on these higher grounds. And as the Brits were wreaking havoc, they got surprised by a rush of soldiers in a counterattack, the soldiers trained by Bonaparte himself. 
They had climbed up the heights and got run back down the hill by the French. General O'Hara was shot and captured, although he did survive his wounds. Twelve years prior, O'Hara had to surrender to George Washington at Yorktown. This time around, he had to surrender to Napoleon. My man kept getting humbled. But the French were not done. They carried on an assault on Fort Mulgrave. Weather conditions made muskets useless, but they fought hand-to-hand, and Napoleon led the wave himself. His horse was shot out from underneath him. He was stabbed in the thigh by a bayonet from a British soldier. But Fort Mulgrave fell, as did other forts, and the crew pushed to the sea. Napoleon had succeeded in protecting France from outside invaders. The Brits and Spanish did attempt to steal or burn a few of the ships left in Toulon, but they left a few of the French Navy's ships, roughly 18. The Republican Army then handled those French in the city who had collaborated with the British and Spanish with executions. It was becoming more and more clear that the monarchy and the ancient regime of old were gone, and the Republic of France was here to stay. Napoleon, at the age of 24 years old, was named Brigadier General. In 1795, the Committee for Public Safety would fall. Maximilien Robespierre, the architect of the Reign of Terror, had become so radicalized and paranoid, he turned on his former allies. The execution of Robespierre in 1794 would be the beginning of the end of the Committee of Public Safety, which would then become the Directory. I know, it's a little confusing. Try to stay with me. The Directory is a five-man group which would frequently consult with Napoleon on military matters. But let's take a break from the military terminology and focus instead on another aspect of Napoleon Bonaparte's life, the ladies. After his success in Toulon, Napoleon, at the age of 25, met a young woman named Desiree Clary. They met in Marseille, and she was the daughter of a merchant, and Napoleon was immediately taken by her. They met after his brother Joseph encountered Desiree asleep in a public location, waiting as their sister worked to free their brother from local authorities on an issue related to requests for nobility. Joseph walked Desiree home and immediately became friends with the entire Clary family. Joseph was besotted with Desiree until Napoleon showed up. He fell head over heels in love with her and told Joseph to go after the sister instead. Joseph and Julie Clary would get married, and though Napoleon made his intentions clear that he desired to marry Desiree, her mother was not thrilled. One Bonaparte in a family is more than enough, she said. But as Napoleon went back to war, he remained distant. He continued to ignore her, but Desiree noticed the red flags and began to stop writing. Now, Napoleon's ego could not handle the blow of her ignoring him, And he tried to renew her interest. Her family moved to Genoa, and Napoleon complained about the sting of rejection he felt. How dare she move on? He thought Desiree would be sickened by losing him, but she just went and married another suitor and eventually became Queen of Sweden, where her descendants are still on the throne. Atta girl. But for whatever harsh feelings Napoleon suffered at the end of his relationship with Desiree, they would be quickly forgotten when he met someone else. Josephine de Bournay. Well... Actually, her name was Marie-Joseph Rose Taché de la Pagerie. She actually preferred the name Rose. That was what she was called her entire life, but Napoleon preferred the name Josephine and forced her to adopt it. I hate it when men... She was born on a sugar plantation in Martinique, and at the time of their meeting, she was 32 years old, six years the senior of Napoleon. Josephine was widowed with two children from a loveless marriage. 
Now, Josephine's older sister, Catherine, was supposed to marry Alexander de Bournay, a wealthy suitor. Not wanting to lose the connection and the money, Josephine's father offered him the younger sister when Catherine died. There was no love there. And Alexander was often cruel to Josephine, abandoning her often and having multiple affairs. The problem seemed to fix itself when he was arrested during the French Revolution. Josephine and the children were also taken into custody. Alexander would be executed in July of 1793, but Josephine would be freed five days later after the fall of Robespierre. She was allowed to leave and go home with her children to recover what possessions she could. And Josephine decided to enjoy her new life as well as climb back into the ranks of society. There were a few affairs here and there, including with Paul Barat, a member of the directory. Eventually, at a party at his home, Barat would introduce Josephine to his mentee, a young soldier who immediately fell in love with the tall, willowy woman. The phrase love at first sight cannot accurately portray the absolute attachment Napoleon had to Josephine immediately. It was not mutual. In fact, Josephine frequently referred to Napoleon as puss in boots. She thought he was a silly young man with no connections and a funny accent. But Napoleon would not accept defeat. He showered her with presents and won over her children, Hortense and Eugene. And it did work. She agreed to marry him. But one can only assume that Josephine accepted the pursuit for some form of protection. It's hard out there as a woman. I can't fault her for it. Meanwhile, Napoleon's family had concerns about their son marrying an older woman with two children. But despite their protestations, the two did get married only months after meeting before Napoleon set out on his Italian campaign. The consummation of their wedding night was interrupted by Josephine's dog, Fortune. And Napoleon was aghast when he realized he had to share the bed with the dog. Fortune was protective of his owner and went about to seeing that the man who was now in bed with them did not touch her. Nevertheless, he told her he would write to her as he went back to war. And write to her he did. Pages and pages of some of the filthiest smut you have ever read, as well as hyper-romantic declarations of adoration. My waking thoughts are all of thee. Your portrait and the remembrance of last night's delirium have robbed my senses of repose. Sweet and incomparable Josephine, what an extraordinary influence you have over my heart. Are you vexed? Do I see you sad? Are you ill at ease? My soul is broken with grief, and there is no rest for your lover. But is there more for me when delivering ourselves upon the deep feelings which master me, I breathe out upon your lips? Upon your heart, a flame which burns me up. Ah, it was this past night I realized that your portrait was not you. You start at noon, I shall see you in three hours. Meanwhile, mio dolce amor, accept a thousand kisses, but give me numb, for they fire my blood. March 14th, 1796. Every moment separates me further from you, my beloved, and every moment I have less energy to exist so far from you. You are the constant object of my thoughts. I exhaust my imagination in thinking of what you are doing. If I see you unhappy, my heart is torn and my grief grows greater. If you are gay and lively among your friends, male and female, I reproach you with having so soon forgotten the sorrowful separation three days ago. Thence you must be fickle and henceforth stirred by no deep emotions. So you see, I am not easy to satisfy, but my dear, I have quite different sensations when I fear that your health may be affected or that you have cause to be annoyed. Then I regret the haste with which I was separated from my darling. 
I feel, in fact, that your natural kindness of heart exists no longer for me. And it is only when I am quite sure you are not vexed that I am satisfied. If I were asked how I slept, I feel that before replying, I should get a message to tell me that you had a good night. The ailments, the passions of men influence me only when I imagine they may reach you, my dear. My good genius, which has always preserved me in the midst of great dangers, surrounds you, enfolds you, while I will face my fate unguarded. Ah, be not gay, but a trifle melancholy, and especially may your soul be free from worries as your body from illness. You know what our good Ossian says on this subject? Write me, dear, at, at full length, and accept the thousand and one kisses of your most devoted and faithful friend. April 24th, 1796. To my sweet love, I have received your letters of April the 5th and 10th. You have been several days without writing me. What are you doing then? Yes, my kind love. Kind love, I am not jealous, but sometimes uneasy. Come soon, I warn you. If you tarry, you will find me ill. Fatigue and your absence are far too much for me at the same time. Your letters make up my daily pleasure, and my happy days are not often. June 15th. My life is a perpetual nightmare. A presentiment of ill oppresses me. I see you no longer. I have lost more than life, more than happiness, more than my rest. I am almost without hope. I hasten to send a courier to you. He will stay only four hours in Paris and then bring me your reply. Write me ten pages. That alone can console me a little. You are ill. You love me. I have made you unhappy. You are in a delicate health. I do not see you. The thought overwhelms me. I have done you so much wrong that I know not how to atone for it. I accuse you of staying in Paris and you were ill there. Josephine was cold to him. And he, a young man in his 20s, did not know how to respond. Taylor Swift recently wrote lyrics. And yes, I know I can pull a Taylor Swift quote out for anything, but hear me out. Remind myself, the more I gave, you'd want me less. Napoleon never figured that out on his own, and he never learned how to not force love. One can't really fault him for feeling the pains of love so deeply for a woman for who all intents and purposes seem to be settling for him. That dynamic will, of course, change, and, but Napoleon would find out in his absence that Josephine had taken a lover. Hippolyte Charles. For the sake of me not having to pronounce a Greek name every few minutes, we're just going to call him Charles. And Charles was an officer in the French army. Josephine found Charles to be more fun to be around. They had plenty in common, including interest in fashion, which I found very interesting, and, well, sex. They both like sex. And boy, does this provide a shift in the tone in Napoleon's letters. Ahem. I don't love you anymore. On the contrary, I detest you. You are a vile, mean, beastly slut. You don't write to me at all. You don't love your husband. Soon, I hope, I will be holding you in my arms and then I will cover you with a million hot kisses burning like the equator. And I do feel bad for him, but the tone shift gets me every time. I hate you. Come home so we can kiss. For a time, Josephine was able to convince Napoleon that the rumors were untrue, but they continued to reach him constantly. While in Egypt, and I will focus more on the Egypt uh, campaign in the next episode, Napoleon will write a letter to Joseph to ask him to help obtain a divorce from Josephine. Unfortunately, this letter will be intercepted by the British. Specifically, it was Horatio Nelson and crew. And highly amused they were that Napoleon was having marital problems, the Brits decided to try a little humiliation, publishing the letter in newspapers across England. Napoleon is depressed, hurting and humiliated. He takes up correspondence with his former lover, Desiree, to serve as some sort of distraction from the pain. He 
gives her the code name in letters Eugenie and takes one for himself, Clisson. And here comes the time to introduce one of my favorite Napoleon facts. Napoleon basically wrote fan fiction about his own relationship with Desiree. The book is called Clisson et Eugenie, and I have read it so you don't have to. It is not good. Clisson keeps a biting sort of love for Eugenie in the book, but he constantly writes about how her sister is far better looking. He also creates a plot line in which Eugenie is unfaithful to him, clearly merging these two situations he is currently in in his life. The book ends tragically with Clisson's death. It's just, it's just not good. It's not good. But for whatever humiliation Napoleon felt at Josephine's hand, time after time, Napoleon will forgive her because he does love her to the point of no return. That is, until she proves to be a burden for his lineage. Because no matter how ardently Napoleon loved Josephine, his ego would always take first prize. I hate it when men... God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast and we're back for 2024 with this series about Napoleon and I'm so excited. Thank you to everyone who donates to our Patreon that allows us to buy books, pay for music costs, streaming costs, and all those other things that you don't necessarily think about when you're running a podcast. As always, if we use a source on the show, we're going to bring them up and I urge you to buy those books and read them yourself. Today's sources include Napoleon Alive by Andrew Roberts. Napoleon's own fan fiction, Clisson and Eugenie, uh, by Napoleon Bonaparte. I, you know, you can buy it if you want to, but you can find PDFs of it for free online and you don't have to. <laughs> it is not good. I've, you've been warned. Napoleon.org. David A. Bell, Napoleon, a concise biography. History.com's timeline, so you can support their website. Always love History.com. And if you want to hear about the Italian campaigns and the Egyptian campaigns, don't worry. I will go back to those in the second episode. I just we had to get the love letters in up front. That stuff is what Pad could never. And if you're not over there already, join us on History Talk on TikTok. My account is Melissa Fairlady. We have so much fun over there making videos, talking about history and just other shenanigans. It's a lot of fun. So we'll go back to the Italian campaigns and Napoleon in Egypt. And of course, many more ladies to come. Can I say that? I, I feel bad now that that sounded like an innuendo. Never mind. We'll see you next time, friends. 